open up your New Testaments and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is where we'll be studying from in just a moment. It's wonderful to be with you and to be able to worship with you. I've been so encouraged by the worship thus far. Appreciate Brother Davis's lesson. Really look forward to the next couple of installments of that study. What an extremely important topic, unity. And one that's sorely misunderstood by a lot who call themselves brethren. And there's a lot of false doctrine even within the church concerning unity and diversity. And as Brother Davis made very clear by Scripture, there is no unity in diversity but in the Spirit. And I certainly appreciate his lesson. Look forward to the next. Hebrews chapter 12, as I mentioned, is where we'll begin for our lesson in this hour. In a couple of familiar verses, in verse 1, the Hebrew writer says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We know that it's common throughout the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul we see it, for there to be analogies of athletic events to describe our walk of faith and what we do as we live on earth before God. A race is the most common one that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul demonstrated how those in the Isthmian Games, is probably what he was referring to, what we're most familiar to is the Olympic Games, but that they competed and they did this vigorously. They gave up a lot and they spent so much time in their entire lives competing for a perishable crown. How much more important is it for us to give such strenuous efforts and disciplining our bodies for an imperishable crown? Paul demonstrated that in his life. He demonstrated that in 2 Timothy 4 when he neared the end of his life and he said, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race and he demonstrated that by keeping the faith. Well, many like Paul have finished their race. That's the context of Hebrews chapter 12. But then he says, therefore we also, the race that we're in is our responsibility. We must run it in a way that we will reach the end and be those who receive the crown of life. We also must run. Abraham ran his race. Abel ran his race. Noah ran his race. Moses ran his race. So many people of faith, men and women and children, went on before us, demonstrated such great faith, but we also are expected to run that same race of faith and run it in the same way. So he demonstrates that by encouraging the readers in Hebrews chapter 12 to take their example and follow it. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. That's the people that are mentioned in chapter 11. All those of the general assembly, those who were the just men now made perfect in the blood of Christ, they have run their race and they bear witness. It's not that they're necessarily witnessing us, but they bear witness of the race of faith. They bear witness of the faithfulness of God to those who are faithful. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. 
In chapter 11 and verse 2, it says, By faith the elders obtained a good testimony. And in verse 4, it demonstrates what that means in Abel, that he offered a more excellent sacrifice by faith than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it being dead still speaks. I'm convinced that that's what he means in chapter 12 and verse 1. It's a great cloud of witnesses. They are bearing witness to us. Even though they are dead like Abel, they still speak through their actions of faith. They tell us as we study them, this is what God means when He calls us to live by faith. It's not a system of emotions. It's not some wishes placed upon a star. It's not going by the philosophy of men. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And when God gives us something to do, He expects us to make whatever sacrifice is necessary. He expects us to go to whatever length it takes. People in the world call that radical and they shun it. God calls it that which is necessary to be pleasing to Him. All these people of faith, though, had to endure. The greatest object of our faith and the one we look up to the most in verse 2, Jesus had to live by faith as well. He's called the author and finisher of our faith. He demonstrated obedience to God. He demonstrated faith and trust in His God. But you notice there in verse 1, these people of faith, as is demonstrated in chapter 11, had to do some things in order to endure in this long and grueling race. He tells the Hebrew readers, let us lay aside every weight. And I want to suggest to you that that's distinct from the sin he goes on to mention. Weight and sin are seen as contrasted things. You lay aside the weight and the sin, not the sin which is the weight. Certainly it's a weight. But you lay aside the weight and the sin. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12, we read that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And I will not be brought under the power of those lawful things. There may be something that is lawful. We have the authority to do it. But if it's not helpful in our life of faith, as Billy demonstrated, the liberties that were given in Christ. Yes, it's lawful, but if it hinders you or your brother, it's not helpful. And so lay aside those things which just aren't helping us get to heaven. It could be something as simple as the time we spend on social media or the time we spend before the TV, or maybe the job that we have is keeping us from services or growing in Christ. That's that's not inherently sinful, but it is a weight and it's weighing you down. You won't finish the race. Lay aside the weight. But I want us to especially focus in on that phrase, the sin, which so easily ensnares us. Us. It's obvious that we have to run according to the rules, as 2 Timothy 2 and verse 5 says, or else we'll become disqualified. Those things which are sinful, as 1 John 3, 4 demonstrates, are those things which are without law. Sin is lawlessness. We have to compete according to the rules, or else that sin will trip us up. But I want us to notice that he says, lay aside the sin. The definite article is there in the original language, the Greek language. And what that definite article usually does is it kind of narrows the field. It specifies something. Now, he doesn't give a specific sin, but he does say the sin. You must lay it aside. I believe this could be evil in general, but something that specifically Jeremiah deals with and struggles with. What's your sin? that faces you at every single turn. It could be covetousness. It could be lust. It could be jealousy. It could be hate. It could be selfish ambition. You name it. Only you know what your sin is. And you need to lay it aside if you're going to make this life successful, if you're going to finish the race. 
But I think that while there may be something specific that we know, I struggle with, and I know it, you may not know it, but I do, and I need to lay that aside, I need to take care of that. And it may be that the Hebrew readers knew of their sin, whether as a whole or individually, I know this is what I struggle with, and if I don't just get rid of this outright, I will not make it to heaven. While there are specifics we could narrow down in our lives, I think that there is a general that applies to every single one of us though still somewhat specific in regard to this idea of the sin. Consider that for a moment this afternoon. I want us to consider the text in its context, to consider some general part that we can all apply to our lives. You notice I'm reading from the New King James Version. He says, lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. The order in the Greek is ha Euperistatos hamartia. And that means nothing to us. We don't know Greek. But euperistatos is the word that is translated which so easily ensnares us. And so maybe a more accurate reading, as the Young's literal translation puts it, the closely besetting sin, the easily ensnaring sin. There is a specific sin which by its nature is closely besetting us. That word euperistatos is from the word, you well parry around and status standing. So it just means easily standing around. Besetting is a good translation of it. It is uh, circumferencing our lives. Strong defines it as well standing around, thwarting in every direction. He goes on to comment saying, skillfully surrounding, besetting. Vincent's word studies says this of the word. It's of a sin which readily or easily encircles and entangles the Christian runner. Like a long loose robe clinging to his limbs, beset is a good rendering, meaning to surround. Adam Clark says this of the word, euperistatos. Whatever it may be, the word gives us to understand that it is what meets us at every turn, that it is always presenting itself to us. You have a sin that sounds like that? Every day, you've got to overcome the temptation to partake in that sin. It is a constant struggle, and you'll never be able to let your guard down about it. I think we all have a sin that we always have to be aware of. But I think there's a general thought, a sin that always surrounds every single one of us, and it's at the fundamental basis of all the specific sins, maybe the specific sin that Jeremiah struggles with. Vincent's Word Studies goes on in commenting on this section of Scripture in Hebrews 12. And he says, The sin may be any evil propensity, as we've discussed, but the sin of unbelief naturally suggests itself here in this context with the Hebrew readers. Jameson Fawcett of Brown in their commentary says, It is not primarily the sin, etc., but sin in general, with, however, specific reference to apostasy against which he had already warned them as one to which they might gradually be seduced, the besetting sin of the Hebrews? Unbelief. Matthew Henry says this may mean the damning sin of unbelief. Suffice it to say, unbelief surrounded the Hebrews, and I believe that is what surrounds us each and every day. The reason we choose to do what we do in contradiction to God's direction is ultimately unbelief. It's certainly what the Hebrews were struggling with, and it's why they were drifting away. The Hebrew epistle is laced with this topic of apostasy and an exhortation to believe. Stop 
unbelieving, instead have faith. Throughout this epistle, the writer warns of drifting away from the standard. In chapter 2 and verse 1, that's specifically the case. We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. In chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, Beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. In chapter 4 and verse 11, he says, Be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. And in chapter 6, after, after condemning them or reproving them rather for their lack of growth up to that point, he warns them about what's going to happen if you stop growing. You may slouch back toward apostasy to where it is impossible that you can be renewed to repentance. You already know the word, so someone, no one can tell you something you don't already, to, already know. It's not impossible that you can repent. It's impossible that you can hear anything new enough to jolt your spirit into repentance. There's a great danger in that. In chapter 10 and in verse 35, he tells them, Do not cast away your confidence. You have need of endurance. And he encourages them in verse 39 after quoting Habakkuk 2, We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but you're in danger of that. He's telling them, I'm confident of better things for you. In chapter 12, he mentioned Esau as an example of such unbelief and apostasy and departing from the living God. And in verse 25 of chapter 12, he says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not, refuse, did not escape who refused him who spoke from earth, how much more shall we escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Time and time again, he warned them of apostasy. Specifically in the Hebrew epistle, they were confronted with Judaizing false teaching. In chapter 13, he said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is followed with these words. A lot in the denominations want to take that and run with it. And they suggest that, you know, I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. Jesus Christ is the same. I can continue in instrumental music because in worship because Jesus Christ is the same. That's not what that means. He's saying since your obedience to the gospel, the gospel of Christ hasn't changed. So then he says in verse 9, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. They were confronted by false teaching and it was causing them to lose their faith. On top of that, these false teachers and their own countrymen were persecuting them. So it's not enough that the devil threw false doctrine at them, but he tried to actually inflict physical pain on them in chapter 10. That's the context when he says to them, recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Remember, you were faithful then. Don't let it deter you from your life of faith now. So he exhorts them to have faith, to live believing and trusting in God. Don't have an evil heart of unbelief and departing from God. The Israelites who were given as an example of apostasy as they fell and their bodies rotted in the wilderness. They did not enter in because of unbelief and disobedience. They did not believe, even though they had God right before them. They didn't trust Him. In chapter 10, remember, he quotes from Habakkuk 2, saying, Yet a little while, and he was coming, will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. You need to believe. That's where chapter 11 comes in. This is what the people of God did in their lives. These are those who bear witness to the life that God requires of His servants to live and what God will do in fulfilling us as we submit ourselves to Him. By faith, they did something according to His will. Chapter 12 and verse 2, 
Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. We need to have faith. They were struggling with that. They were struggling with believing God, even though they had the gospel confirmed to them by signs, wonders, and various miracles. But we need to understand something fundamental about this word, pistis, translated faith. It doesn't merely mean belief, assent to facts. But actually, it more closely follows a connotation of trust. Now, those two things we use synonymously, and many times we really see no distinction, but there is a distinction, I believe. And I think that we know that when we use it in our various conversations in life. We know that belief and trust are similar, are very intimately related, but trust brings a different weight to it. Arton Gingrich defines pistis as that which evokes trust and faith. The state of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. Trust. They weren't simply not believing in God. They knew who God was. They were convinced in the things of God. They knew the facts and they believed the facts, but they were still falling back. What was the problem? Not trusting in God. They needed to stop wavering in their faith and start trusting in God or they would not finish their race. Might I suggest to you that that same sin of unbelief, of lacking trust, is at the seat of all of our specific sins. If you know a specific sin you're struggling with, and we all do know what we're struggling with now or what we struggled with in the past, at the foundation of that struggle is your lack of trust in God. Consider these four things of application. Unbelief surrounds each and every one of us, and we're tested. Our trust in God is tested at every single turn of our lives. And one of the things that's tested in our trust of God is whether we trust the steadfastness of His Word. Brother Davis mentioned from Ephesians 4 that there is one faith, and he'll get to that in further studies. But there's one spirit, there's one avenue of revelation from God to man. Do we trust how steadfast that is though? I think that we know that God's word is settled in heaven, that God has spoken past tense, that He settled His will. But do we really trust it? We know we're not receiving any other revelation. We know it because Paul said in Galatians 1, if anyone comes to you, even an angel or myself, and he comes and brings you any other gospel than you have originally received, let him be accursed. Do not receive that. Do not accept that. We know it factually, but do we trust it? I think the Hebrew writers knew it factually, but quite obviously they weren't trusting in that. Notice there in chapter 2, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him, God bearing witness, both with signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. I want us to notice there uses the word therefore. It points back to chapter 1, where in verse 2 of chapter 1, He demonstrated that now God speaks through His Son. He once spoke through the prophets, now He speaks through His Son. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the prophetic word of the Old Testament. He is, in fact, the fulfillment of it. He is the consummation of it. He's what it all led to in the first place. And He is deity Himself. 
And then he says in the later part of that first section, in verse 4, that he has obtained a greater name than the angels. So Jesus is better than the angels. The prophets were mouthpieces of God. They spoke God's word. He spoke through them. Angels is a word that simply means a messenger. And those messengers of God's word revealing the old law, verse 2, the word spoken through angels, are submissive and subservient to, are less than the Son of God. And he's saying if something lesser, the word spoken through prophets, the word spoken through angels, proves steadfast, how much more shall the word of the Son of God prove steadfast? Do we trust that? You know, in the Old Testament, that word spoken through prophets and the word revealed through angels, time and time proved to be steadfast. How about Leviticus 10 with Nadab and Abihu, who offered up profane fire before the Lord, which He did not command them. What happened? God said, use this fire. They used this fire over here. The Lord said nothing about the silence of the Scripture does not authorize. It does not permit. And so because they did that, and the word of God stands steadfast, fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Aaron and Moses, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. God's word is steadfast. That word under the Old Testament, not spoken directly by Jesus, but through prophets and angels, that stood fast. In Numbers 20, Moses himself fell prey to this lack of trust that God's Word means what it says. It says what it means. In Numbers 20 and verse 7, similarly to earlier on in the wilderness wandering, Moses is told to bring water forth from a rock. But first, it was told to Moses that he would strike the rock years before in Exodus chapter 17. He struck the rock and water came forth from the rock. But this time in Numbers 20 and verse 8, he says, take the rod, you and your brother, speak to the rock before their eyes. Moses' anger got the best of him, and he struck the rock twice before the Lord. And for that reason, Moses was kept from seeing the promised land. This is what God said to him, because you did not believe me to hallow me. He showed a lack of trust in God because he didn't follow God's word. How about the classic example and account of Uzzah? After clearly being told by God that you shall not touch the Ark of the Covenant, it was stumbling and he reached forth to catch it, doing a good deed at least in his mind and in our minds. And when he touched it, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6 and verse 7, and God struck him there, notice, for his error. God's word is steadfast. Do we believe it? Do we believe that if we break God's commandment, there will be consequences to that? That's exactly the application the Hebrew writer goes on to make. The words spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. That's what we just saw. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which was spoken by the Lord Himself? In Matthew 17, when Jesus was transfigured, Elijah and Moses appeared there on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Son of God. And Peter and James and John witnessed it. They wanted to make a tabernacle for each man. But then they looked up and it was only Jesus. You've got Moses representing the old law, Elijah representing the prophets, and God said, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. If Jesus spoke this word, how are we going to escape if we neglect it? 
It was confirmed by those who heard him. First John chapter 1 and verse 3, the Apostle John demonstrates that which we have seen as apostles, eyewitnesses, we heard, we declare it to you that you may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. They confirmed it. They were witnesses to it. God bore witness with signs, wonders, and various miracles. After He gave the Great Commission to the apostles, go preach the gospel to every creature, He said, these signs will follow those who believe. In My name they will cast out demons, speak with new tongues, take up serpents, drink anything deadly, and it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Can you imagine hearing someone speak a message and then seeing them raise someone from the dead? Would you take that message seriously? How shall we escape? if we neglect so great a salvation. Do we trust that though? We know it intellectually. I'm not doubting that. Do we trust it? You know, sometimes our lives demonstrates we don't really trust it because we use God's word flippantly. We don't don't take it very seriously sometimes. If we really trust the steadfastness of God's word and we understand what Jesus said in John 10, 35, the scripture cannot be broken. We may break the Word of God and sin in doing so. We break the law, but the law is not broken. The law breaks us. Do we understand that? Do we trust that? In Galatians, the sixth chapter, in verse 7, the Apostle Paul demonstrates this lack of trust that some have. It says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. We show we don't trust the steadfastness of God's Word when we go out there and we continue in sin and we think we're going to get to heaven. It's not how it works. Do we really trust how steadfast His Word is? In Colossians 3 and verse 17, it tells us whatever we do in word or deed, we're to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. When we do something without the authority of Jesus... We demonstrate we don't trust God's word to be steadfast, but we need to. We need to make sure we put that aside so we can finish this race successfully. Do you trust the steadfastness of God's word? And piggybacking off of that, do you trust God's evaluation of sin? You know, one of the most impressive things to many people, to me especially, when we read God's word and one of the greatest validating factors of it and its internal evidence of inspiration, is that God does not just give the good. He gives the good and the bad and the ugly, so to speak. He never condones the bad and the ugly, but He always tells us how it actually happened. He always tells us that there is truly evil in the world. This is what it is, so you can stay away from it. And He also tells us just how ugly that evil is. Do we trust God when He tells us how ugly sin is? You know, we all trust Him when we read God's Word about how bad sin is and what it does to us. But then when temptation actually comes, that must be put into practice. Do we really trust it? If we decide, even knowing something is wrong, to do it anyways, I think we show we don't trust God's evaluation of sin. I know I've done that too many times in my life where I know something is wrong, I know why it's wrong, I know where it will lead, I know the demonstration of destruction that it will inevitably have on my life, spiritually and physically. And even though I know that, I decide at the time, I don't trust that heaven and that the crown of life and that fellowship with God is better than this terrible, putrid act. I know it factually, but if I decide to do it anyway, I show that I don't trust God's Word about sin. And Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, this is what the Hebrew writer reveals. 
And this warning, as we alluded to earlier, he says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. He speaks about that departure, that apostasy. Give warning to each other and exhort one another that you don't do that. Don't depart from the living God. How would you depart from the living God? If you fall prey to the deceitfulness of sin. What we exhibit in our lives when we decide to sin instead of follow God's word is that we don't trust Him. We have an evil heart of unbelief in departing from Him. God says sin is this, even though sin is saying I'm much better than that. Don't listen to God. Listen to me. And instead of listening to God and trusting His evaluation of it, we decide to go on ahead and do what we want to do. I want to tell you, sin is a fraud. Sin never tells us the truth. Sin never is as it appears to be. It always boasts of greater fulfillment than it has to offer. It always acts as if there's something positive that will be worth our while. It's never, ever, ever true. And when we decide to ignore the deceitfulness of sin, we demonstrate an evil heart of unbelief. We demonstrate we don't trust what God says. God says sin is a fraud. God says don't listen to sin. There is nothing good about this action. Don't go down that path. And we show I don't trust what God is saying. How many times have parents had to deal with this in their children's lives? I know that my mom and dad had to deal with it all too often where they tell me, I know I've had the experience. You need to just take my word as true because I've gone through this before and I just don't trust them. God is constantly trying to tell us the reality of sin. And do you notice the danger of it? He says, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So here you got God and He's telling us, this is what sin truly is. We say, I don't trust that. I want to do it anyway. I want to find out myself. And we're deceived and we fall short. Well, it's only a matter of time until we get hardened in those actions and in those decisions. We get desensitized to God's warnings. So where we didn't trust God at one time, now we're not even hearing Him. We we don't listen to Him at all. God opens His mouth. God's Word is presented to us and, and we just turn a blind eye to it. We stop our ears. Our heart is hardened. That's what's at stake. Never think that we can decide to follow sin just on one occasion, in one way. This sin is greater than this sin. I'll put this sin aside, but I'm going to revel in this sin a little while and think that you can sow your wild oats and not reap any consequences. He who sows to his flesh will the flesh reap corruption. It's been said before that sin always takes you further than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it costs you more than you would ever want to pay. Sin is progressive. Sin leads to more sin. Sin leads to hardened hearts. We need to just trust God at His Word. There's a classic example of this lacking trust in the 12th chapter of Hebrews with Esau. We remember the story in Genesis 25 when Esau was out in the field and Jacob made a stew because he intended to to deceive Esau and take his birthright from him. And Esau came in and he was hungry and he was pretty dramatic about this. Sin will, will, will overdo the description of and the feeling of your current situation. It'll make you think that things are worse than they actually are. Esau said when he came in in Genesis 25, 32, Look, I'm about to die. What is this birthright to me? 
He wasn't about to die. He very well could have taken the time to make his own stew, keep his birthright, and satiate his hunger. But he was described as a profane man. Verse 16 of chapter 12. Don't fall short of the grace of God, lest there be in anyone a fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. And you know what? He immediately regretted it. And in verse 17, it shows the permanency of his decision. You know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. You know, many times we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can do it and we can receive God's forgiveness after I do it. What about that time when we do it and God's trumpet sounds? It's going to be too late. There will be a time, and we don't know when that time is, where after we make the decision to sin, time ends. And we'll regret it for eternity. He was a profane person. He didn't trust that having a part to play in the scheme of redemption for man, the birthright whereby through his family the earth shall be... He didn't, he didn't trust in the value of that, so he sold it. And he regretted it. You know, in 1 John chapter 2, it tells us a little bit about these things of the world that try to deceive us. After speaking of all that is in the world in verse 16, and those who love the world don't love the Father, and they demonstrate that by those actions, there's an impressive description by the Spirit in verse 17. The world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away, but not only the world is passing away, he says the lust of it, which tells me if I decide in this moment that I'd rather trust the value that sin has to offer than trust God telling me it is not worth it at all. One day, the very desire for it won't exist. Now, where will we be? If I've defined myself by these lusts of the flesh and the pleasures I'm trying to fulfill in the flesh, and one day those won't even exist and my desire for them won't even exist, then what will I be identified about in eternity? But the one who does the will of God, the one who lays up spiritual treasure that devotes himself to God's will day in and day out, those things will never cease to be. They will only be fully realized in heaven. If I'm identified as a child of God now, I will be identified as a child of God for eternity. If I decide that sin is better than God, sin is better than being a part of God's family, and I decide to do that, one day I won't have any identification. I'll be in outer darkness. I will not have fellowship with God. Do I trust God when He gives us the evaluation of sin? And along with that, do I trust the ability and aid of our high priest that God has supplied us with? You know, sometimes when we succumb to temptation, we like to make excuses. We, we say something like, I can't help it. All sin and fall short of the glory of God, and that's a fact. But not all had to sin. Every time we sin, we always have the choice not to sin. But when we make this excuse that I'll do it, I can't help it. I'm weak. God knows it. It is who I am. And I will be who I will be. It's too much for me to overcome. It's too much for God to expect me to overcome it. What we show in part is that we don't trust God's provision of an all-sufficient and all-powerful high priest. In chapter 4 of Hebrews... He encourages them in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Unlike the Levitical priesthood, Jesus entered to the holiest of all, heaven itself. Chapter 9 and in verse 24. 
He actually serves in the realm of God literally for us. Because He serves in that realm, we need to have boldness and approach that throne. But as He is in heaven... He serves before God for us, and He is like no other able to sympathize with us. In Job chapter 9 and verse 33, Job lamented, There is no mediator between us who may lay his hand on both. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, there is one mediator between God and men, and he demonstrates that by saying, The man, Jesus Christ, word for mankind, anthropos. He can sympathize with us. We don't have someone that just doesn't know what it's like. We say, I can't help it. Jesus wouldn't know what it's like. God wouldn't know what it's like. He sent Jesus in the flesh so that he could say, I know what it's like. And not only that, but he was without sin, which tells me not only does he know how hard it is and how much of a struggle it is, but he knows the successful path. He knows how to overcome it. Don't you wish that someone could just tell you how to get rid of this, whatever sin you're struggling with? Jesus can tell you. He can sympathize with you. He's gone through it before and He was successful. We need to come boldly to that throne of grace. Notice that we may obtain mercy. When we fail, we have mercy in our high priest. In chapter 2, it says He was made like uh, His brethren that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. His blood is still the propitiation for our sins. 1 John chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. If you fall short, you can have that removed. But notice too, he doesn't say you just have a safety net there so you can go on sin and and you have that safety net. He says to obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. I may not need to go to the throne of grace for remission of sins. I very may well need that at some point in time. But it's not that we sin every second of every day. God's Word never indicates that's how our lives should be. We can go a day without sinning. We can go two days without sinning. We can grow to maturity in Christ where we don't have to go to that throne of grace for that mercy, that forgiveness of sins, as often as we once did when we first came up out of that water of baptism. Not that we'll never sin again, but we sin less and less. That's the pattern of Holy Scripture. We become mature in Christ. But we need to every day go to that throne for grace to help in time of need. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, it tells us that no temptation has overtaken us except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow us to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with that temptation will make a way of escape. Do we go to Christ looking for that way of escape? In chapter 12 and verse 9 of 2 Corinthians, Paul demonstrated his struggle in the flesh with that thorn in the flesh and reminded us of God's grace when Jesus told him, my grace is sufficient for you. Do we trust that? Or do we just think, there's no way I can help it. I'll go ahead and sin and I'll ask for forgiveness later. Trusting God and the aid of our high priests will look for help to overcome that sin. In chapter 7, it shows us the extent of His help. When it says He, because He continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood and He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. That word uttermost means not just the quality, but also the duration. And in here, both concepts are employed. He will always, duration, be there to help us. And He will always have the sufficiency to help us in time of need. Jesus is always there for us and always has everything we need, but do we trust this? Or do we just go ahead and sin? Blaming it on our erring nature our inherent sinfulness, which is error in and of itself. We don't have to sin. And Jesus is there to make sure we overcome it. Do we trust that? Do we trust that He is able? And do we trust, lastly, 
the promise of God that judgment is coming. And chapter 9 of Hebrews and in verse 27, as was recently just read in our scripture reading, the Bible tells us it is appointed for man to die once and after this the judgment. We know that as a fact. It's obvious the scripture is replete with warnings of judgment. There are those who are told about the judgment to come and they put off hearing the word until a more convenient time. And that convenient time never came. We know it as Christians, judgment will come. But do we trust it? When we sin willingly, we just decide we're going to go ahead and sin. We show we don't trust God's promise about judgment. We don't trust that it could be right around the corner. We don't trust that we don't know the time or the hour. It's going to come like a thief in the night. We show that we don't trust God when He says, you may not have enough time to correct this. Do we trust God's promise about judgment? Again, in chapter 4 of Hebrews, in verse 11, He warns following the example of disobedience in the Israelites, and then He explains why. For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. You know, there are too many among us who think that the God under the Old Testament was less lenient than the God under the New Testament. That the God under the New Testament is going to be less strict in His judgment. That couldn't be further from the truth. He says, don't fall, according to the same example of disobedience, citing the Israelites' failures in the wilderness. They did not walk by faith and God struck them dead in the wilderness. And He's saying, if you continue down the same path, God's going to do the same thing to you. And I want us to notice something interesting he says in verse 2 of chapter 4. He says, Indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. They had good news of promise. They had good news of rest. But because they didn't trust in God and they didn't think they could fight those Canaanites and remain victorious, they didn't think they could overcome despite the overwhelming evidence of Jehovah, They died in the wilderness. We are told we can conquer Canaan. We can follow through the Jordan and make it up the other side with the hope of heaven. We can be with Jesus for eternity. No matter how difficult it can be, with God all things are possible. But if we decide to sin, we know it's wrong and we decide to do it anyways, we demonstrate we don't trust that God is going to be as strict with us as He was with them. He says nothing is going to be hidden. You may think you can explain it away. He says your thoughts and intents will be revealed. God knows. Someone says, well, I'm of the family of God. I'm safe. Well, in chapter 10 of Hebrews and in verse 30, he says, we know him who said vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It is the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He'll judge me, a Christian, a child of God. He'll judge you, a Christian, a child of God. He will judge those of His own household. And if those of His own household don't prove themselves through their life and all the evidence that is compiled that they have been faithful as a son, they will not make it to heaven. He'll judge us. He'll judge His people. In Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, it tells us to fear God and keep His commandments. For this is man's all. And it gives the reason. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Do we trust that? Do we trust that one day we're going to give an account to God for everything that we've done in the flesh. I hope we trust that. And if we do, we're going to show it through the lives that we live. We sing from time to time, 
Someday you'll stand at the bar on high. Someday your record you'll see. Someday you'll answer the question of life. What will that answer be? Where will you spend your eternity? When we sing those songs, do we really trust the truth behind those lyrics? Do we believe that what we do in the flesh will be judged? If we do, we'll be striving each and every second of every day to follow God faithfully. We want to offer an invitation to anyone here this morning who has not obeyed the gospel. We don't know your hearts. We don't know your station of life. But it may very well be that you haven't obeyed the gospel and you need to. And you believe and you trust that judgment day is coming. But you also trust ever so more that the blood of Christ will cleanse you from your sins. And you're right to trust in that word. If you obey the gospel by putting on Christ in baptism, His blood will wash away every single sin and you'll come up spotless and blameless. But you have to trust Him, and you trust Him by obeying His will. If you have obeyed the gospel, you've fallen short in some sense or fashion, and we can help you in a spiritual way this morning. We extend the invitation call. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.